Section 9 of The Wars of the Roses by Robert Balmain Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 6 The King's Madness and the First Protectorate of York. Part 1. New God that sittest on e in trona, help the people in ergretenera, that truth and reason renya marisona, for dan shall they leva ut of dreda. After the prorogation of Parliament on July 2nd, 1453, the general lack of good faith which characterizes these times was shown by the imprisonment of Sir William Oldhall, who had been Speaker of the Commons in 1450, on a charge of taking part in Cade's rebellion and in the armed proceedings of the Duke of York at Dartford. Old Hall was one of those who had accepted Henry's offer of amnesty and had taken out letters patent of pardon on June 26, 1452. The process against him was only reversed in the Court of King's Bench shortly after the victory of the Yorkists in the First Battle of St. Albans. The king had gone down to the royal palace of Clarendon in Wiltshire to spend July and August. On August 10th, he became ill, his malady taking the form of a total loss of memory and a lapse into childishness, so that although he could eat and drink and sit in a chair, he could not walk nor show any comprehension of what was going on about him, recognizing none of his household, not even the queen. He remained in this condition for fifteen months. The malady, of course, puzzled the physicians of the time, and indeed this species of insanity is still very mysterious. The king was frequently asked questions by ministers and others, but he never gave any sign of comprehension, and when he recovered from his insanity in December of 1454, he declared that he remembered nothing whatever since he fell ill. It must be borne in mind that Henry's maternal grandfather, Charles VI of France, had been subject to similar fits of madness, that the constitution of very few of the Lancastrian princes after John of Gaunt was really sound, and that Henry VI had gone through a period of storm and stress and disappointment that might have unhinged a much stronger mind. When the king became incapable of performing his royal functions, the right and duty of appointing some form of regency fell according to the constitution upon the House of Peers, or more strictly speaking, the Great Council of the Peers. But nothing was done for two months, as it was expected that every moment the king would recover his senses again. On October 13th, a son was born to Henry and Queen Margaret. The child received the name of Edward. For eight years the king had had no heir, and everyone seems to have assumed during that time that the Lancastrian dynasty would become extinct, and that by a mere process of waiting the Duke of York would become king. But that hope was frustrated. The power of England had never stood so low. Only a little over two months before, on July 17th, the last battle of the Hundred Years' War was fought, Castillon in Guienne a total and irreparable defeat for the English arms. This crisis in the history of the House of Lancaster cannot be better explained than in the words of Stubbs. The final loss of Guienne destroyed all the hold which the government still had on the respect of the country. The king's illness placed the queen and the Duke of York in direct rivalry for the regency. 
the birth of the heir of Lancaster cut off the last hope which the Duke had of a peaceful succession to the crown on Henry's death. The logic of events was steadily pressing the Yorkist house to reach out for the crown, but there is no sign that the Duke of York was yet aiming at it. The king himself had fallen into abeyance, but the king's government went on. No regency was declared, but the council carried on the affairs of state as if the king was still actively at his head. This condition of affairs, however, could not continue, especially as the keeper of the great seal, the chancellor, Archbishop Kemp, was an old man and nearing his end. The choice as regent lay between the queen, the Duke of Somerset, and the Duke of York. It was not long before York established himself as head of the government. He began to prepare the way about the time of the birth of the Prince Edward by bringing an action in the Court of Exchequer against Thomas Thorpe, who had been Speaker of the last Parliament and a doughty opponent of the Duke. The ground of the action was that Thorpe, who was a baron of the Exchequer, had made seizure of some arms belonging to the Duke of York in the London house of the Bishop of Durham. Whether this seizure of York's property was strictly legal is not known, but the Duke was now awarded damages in the Court of Exchequer to the extent of £1,000. Thorpe was put in the Fleet Prison until he should pay this sum. Thus one champion of the Lancastrians was at least for a time out of the way. The Yorkists evidently thought Thorpe a redoubtable opponent, otherwise they would not have beheaded him eight years later. The Parliament, which had been prorogued from July 2nd, met as had been intended at Reading on November 12th, but the King was no better, and so it was prorogued again till February 1454. Meanwhile, the old feudal assembly, the great council of all barons of the King, was summoned to meet on November 21st. An attempt seems to have been made, first not to summon the Duke of York, and then when that was found too illegal, Another obscure attempt was made to warn off some of his chief friends and supporters from attending the council. The Duke naturally protested when he came to the great council at Westminster against this mean intrigue. All the lords present agreed with him. The Duke, in his speech, had referred to his excluded friends as diverse persons such as of long time have been of his council. This is perhaps the first reference to the existence of a distinct Yorkist party. The Duke of Norfolk, who was at this time a kind of right-hand man to York, brought forward another bill of charges against Somerset, who did not appear at the council, to the effect that the previous accusations had been sufficiently proved by the deeds that have followed thereof, and he demanded in a somewhat curious fashion that Somerset should be brought to trial for the loss of Calais and Guienne, according to the laws of chivalry, as found in the book called L'Arbre de Bataille. The Duke was therefore arrested and put into the tower in the first days of December. At the end of the year 1453, or beginning of 1454, when it was clear that only the King's personal action could prevent the Duke of York from getting the chief control of affairs, an attempt was made by Margaret and her friends to penetrate to the mind of Henry through his infant son. The prince was taken down to Windsor, and the Duke of Buckingham took him in his arms and presented him to the king in goodly wise, beseeching the king to bless him 
and the king gave no manner answer. It was clear that nothing was to be made of Henry. If the Duke of York was to be checked, force must be used. The great Lancastrian lords began to collect men in arms. The Earl of Wiltshire and Lord Bonville in Somersetshire, the Duke of Exeter in the West Riding of Yorkshire, and others. Even the old Cardinal Archbishop Kemp commanded all his servants to be ready with bow and arrows, sword and buckler, crossbows, and all other habiliments of war. Thomas Thorpe was employing his enforced leisure in the Tower by drafting a bill of indictment against the Duke of York. An officer of the Duke of Somerset had prudently bespoken all the lodgings available round about the Tower, and the Queen had capped these expressions of the energy of her party by sending up to the Council a bill of five articles, demanding that she should be made regent with very wide powers of government. But the other party was too strong, and by the time Parliament met at Westminster, not at Reading as originally intended, on February 14th, the Duke of York had a commission from Council in the name of the King to open the proceedings. The usual business was transacted, Thorpe was still left in the Tower, and a new Speaker was elected. The defense of Calais was taken into consideration. A sad and wise counsel was asked for. The way was made easier for York by the death on March 23rd of Cardinal Kemp, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of the Kingdom. He was a faithful friend of the Lancastrian house, a good man in his way, one of those sound and honest clerical statesmen who gave their talents and learning to the service of the secular government leaving the work of their diocese to be performed largely by others. His last days were disturbed by threats of violence from the Duke of Norfolk, the overzealous agent of the Duke of York. When the king, almost a year later, came back to consciousness and learned that the archbishop was no more, he remarked that one of the wisest lords in the land was dead. One more attempt was made to extract some sign of volition from the king at Windsor, but without effect. Accordingly, on March 27th, the peers took the inevitable step and appointed a protector. The choice fell on the Duke of York, the claims of Margaret being passed over in silence. The period of the Duke of York's first protectorate seems to have been comparatively peaceful. England had been suffering so long from lack of governance that the presence of a strong man at the head of affairs could not but be beneficial. The protectorate indeed was short-lived, and it was not in any sense epoch-making, although some useful work was done in Parliament. But in an old established country like England there was already a good condition of society in the country, if only peace and order could prevail. The Duke in his short time did something to give that peace and order. The period of the protectorate was to be limited by the duration of the king's infirmity or the coming of age of the Prince Edward. The council also appointed York captain of Calais, in place of the Duke of Somerset, for a period of seven years. Thus he was at the head both of the home government and of all that was left of the English possessions abroad. The places vacated by the death of the Chancellor, Archbishop Kemp, were filled up. The Earl of Salisbury was made Chancellor, and the Bishop of Ely, Thomas Birchier, was made Archbishop of Canterbury. But the existing ministers, except Somerset, seem not to have been displaced. 
The king's son Edward was created Prince of Wales on June 9th. A French fleet was beaten off from Jersey and Guernsey, the islanders killing or capturing no less than 500 of the enemy. The Duke of York visited the turbulent north of England, where a feud was going on between the Nevilles and the Percys. The Percys were supported by the Duke of Exeter, a most vigorous opponent of York's. But Exeter, after giving a good deal of trouble, including the difficulty of getting him out of sanctuary in Westminster, was safely lodged in the royal castle of Pontefract. A strong bench of judges, including the Chief Justice of the Court of Common Pleas and a Justice of the King's Bench, was sent into Yorkshire to deal with all criminal cases, so the hand of the law extended into the most disturbed area in England. The Earl of Devonshire, who was an old partisan of the Duke of York, and who with Lord Cobham had been the only great supporter of the Duke in the critical military demonstration at Dartford in 1452, now broke the peace by a private war against Lord Bonville. York had him at once arrested. Lord Cobham was already in prison for having taken arms for York at Dartford, but the Duke let justice take its course and made no attempt to release him. The Duke of Somerset was kept in the tower without a trial. York has been blamed for denying justice to him. But considering the charges which York had so often brought against Somerset, and also taking into account the latter's great unpopularity, one cannot help thinking that perhaps the Duke was as well without a trial at this time. It probably saved his life. End of section 9